You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Hi there, my name's Danielle. I'm a first year occupational therapy student and week one's Bible reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter two, verses one to five. Isaiah, chapter two, verses one to five. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Sorry, that was an overly dramatic pause. I was trying to get all the tech stuff worked out up the back there and my, boot, my belt was a bit loose and I was in all sorts of trouble. And then it's like the end of the, the passage. Oh, no. So sorry about that. Unnecessary and weird delay. But it's good um, that you're all here this evening for the start of our Isaiah series. Um, the, the series is called How Do We Get to Zion? That's the big overarching question um, of the book of Isaiah, how we're going to get to Zion. Uh, and Zion is the restored, renew, renewed Jerusalem. That's what Zion is. It's the, uh, the, what they call the eschatological hope for Jerusalem. So I'll talk a bit more about it later on, but basically Zion is a city within a city. It's, um, it was a mountain within Jerusalem that King David conquered. And because King David was seen as the ideal archetype of a Jerusalem king, uh, the people of God looked forward to a day when Jerusalem's glory would be thoroughly restored by some new King David type figure on his mount, Mount Zion, which was called the city of David. Um, and then all the blessings would flow. Uh, But the question of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is how are we going to get to Zion, this perfected, completed, most glorious possible vision of Jerusalem that all of God's people hope for? The the whole Old Testament, right? The whole Old Testament of the Bible, that's what it all centers on, is that God's blessing is going to come to the whole world through Jerusalem. Jerusalem being this super powerful city uh, to, and, and all the nations flowing to this city. We'll talk about that a bit more in a few moments. But that's the idea. That's what they're hanging out for. But at the time of writing, uh, this question, how do we get to Zion, is a pressing one uh, because Jerusalem is a mess. It's a shemozzle. 
if there were a, 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 a city, if we were going to make a movie about Isaiah, I think a great city that you could set it in today that would help us to get the picture here that we see in Isaiah would be Rio de Janeiro. That's that really beautiful city in South America. Um, and it has, doesn't it, that really famous statue, Christ the Redeemer, that towers over the city. It's a deeply religious city. It has his, um, it's steeped in Roman Catholicism. And that statue, Christ the Redeemer, was named one of the new seven wonders of the world. 30 meters, Art Deco looks really cool, towers over the city. And you look at it and it looks so beautiful. And, 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 and Rio de Janeiro, right, in the surrounding mountains and hills, it's a beautiful setting. If you just look at the statue, you just think this is God's city, a picture of beauty and serenity and, you know, the world at its best, putting on a show for us. But Rio de Janeiro is also famous, isn't it, for its favelas, the slum that surrounds the city. Uh, which makes up a big part of the city, which is just dogged by poverty and crime and it's off the grid. There's no real infrastructure there. It's just tin huts, one upon the other. It's just a mess. It's chaos. And so there's this jarring juxtaposition, right, between Christ the Redeemer statue, beautiful, towering, magnificent, supreme, and then the reality on the ground, which is a mess, dysfunction, chaos, a terrible place to live. And here in Isaiah, as we open up the first you know, part of the book and read through the kind of the intro setting up Isaiah, chapters 1 to 12, we see a funny, jarring juxtaposition just like that. Here is the city of God that the prophet Isaiah has come to speak to, but it's a, it's a mess. And that's the first point, Jerusalem is a mess. Things look really bad. And I've got some passages up there that I'm going to read out and you can follow along if you want or you can just listen. But here are some of the passages. So first of all, it says in Isaiah chapter 1, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Even a, a donkey knows where it lives. Even an ox knows who its master is. But God's people seem to not understand this. Verse 7. Your country is desolate. This is Judah. Your city is burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left. Listen to this insult. Does this sting? Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. Wait for it. Like a hut in a cucumber field. I know. I know. I know. He's pulled out all, all guns blazing here. I have no idea what that means, but I, I have a sense it's really bad. You're like a hut in a cucumber field. That should wake you up, bring you to your senses like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, but this is a real sting, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. And then he goes on in the rest of this chapter to address Jerusalem as Sodom and Gomorrah. Crazy. 
That's how bad things have got in Jerusalem. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my court, says God to the Jerusalems, uh, to, the, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and appointed festivals I hate with all my being. This is God speaking to his people. I hate your religious festivals. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, says God, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. This is a terrible judgment upon his own people. Jerusalem, the center of blessing to the whole world. I can't stand you, says God. It's like a kid coming to me saying, I love you, Dad. And I said, I don't want to hear it. You're detestable to me. They're offering prayers, even lengthy prayers. I block my ears, says God. You go to TNT, you go to NTU, you go to the courses, you've got the T-shirt, you go to Summit, you're in a growth group, you do walk-up evangelism, formerly known as Lot's uncle, whatever, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. So you're doing this, you're really dedicated, frontline CUA. This is what these people are like, they're completely wrapped up in their religion, the incense, the festivals, the prayer, the sacrifices, and God says, I can't stand you. You're detestable to me. And why is he judging them? Well, in chapter 5, it explains the problem. And I'm going to get um, Emdwin down here to help me because listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 5. It says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. <clears throat> My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleaned it of stone and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked at a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Thank you, Andrew. Well done. Big, big clap for Andrew. Yeah. So it's a song there, a song of judgment. It stings what he's saying, Israel, Jerusalem, you're like a vineyard that I've carefully planted and cultivated. I've built a wine press. I've put you on a beautiful hill that's perfectly placed. I've put a watchtower there so someone can tend this vineyard. And then he says, I went to get the grapes to make the wine and... My vineyard, my precious vineyard, which I gave every chance to flourish, had no fruit. Zero fruit. What's he talking about? He clarifies in chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw, think of the image here. Woe to those who draw sin along with, a cords, with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel. Let it approach. 
Let it come into view so we may know it. Do you see what I'm saying? That Jerusalem is not blessed in the way that God's people wanted the blessings to flow. And so they're saying, God, hurry up. God, do something. God, move. Maybe let's pray some more. But at the same time, they're carrying around wheelbarrows of sin. They've got a trailer on the back of their car full of sin that they're not taking seriously, that they're not dealing with. And they're wondering why the blessing isn't flowing. So then, with Jerusalem in such a miserable state, things are looking really bad. What is the future? What is the future for God's precious Jerusalem, the centre of all his blessings that he promises to the world? Well, we see here in Isaiah that there's this double vision. Isaiah envisages an end time, it's up there on the screen, an end time, a last day. But there are conflicting, contradictory visions that Isaiah has of the future for Jerusalem. So look here in Isaiah, or listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is a glorious picture for Jerusalem that Isaiah can see. Isaiah chapter 2, this is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the perfected Jerusalem, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a glorious vision of Jerusalem. Peace will be brought to the whole earth. There will be no reason for weapons when Jerusalem is established according to this vision because God's law, God's rule will be spoken from Jerusalem and it will be so self-evidently wonderful and holy and beautiful and recognised by all the nations that they'll come to this place to learn wisdom and to settle their disputes and to learn how to live in harmony and peace. It's a glorious picture. And at this stage, it's quite staggering because Jerusalem at this point in time was a real tin pot kind of nation. Can you imagine uh, Ballarat? (laughs) Ballarat being the centre for culture and civilization in 50 years' time. (laughs) I'm really sorry if you're from Ballarat. I just had to pick on something. Geelong, New Zealand, I don't know, whatever. Sydney, um, (laughs) Hobart. uh, But here's this place, no, no one, most of the world doesn't even know Ballarat exists. And just imagine in, you know, 40, 50 years time, all the nations of the world are sending delegates to Ballarat 
to learn from the mighty king of Ballarat, who is so incredibly wise. No one has ever seen anyone like him. He speaks with such wisdom and grace and truth, and he's made such a beautiful, incredible city filled with blessing and order and beauty. And all the citizens are so happy and they love their king. And he's been there for 20 years without any problem. And everyone's going, how do you do it? And he gives them the perfect solution to their situation in their country that they're dealing with. Ballarat. The New York of 2050. (laughs) Even better. Twice as good. Three times as good. Much better. Such that everyone recognizes they rule over us. We want them to rule over us. This is the glorious picture given to God's people of Jerusalem here in Isaiah. So it's a glorious hope, even though things are bad right now. But there is also a grim picture of the future for Jerusalem. Right after this glorious vision, listen to what Isaiah says. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. God Don't forgive them. Don't forgive them. Judge this nation for their apostasy and their evil. Verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. There's a day of reckoning coming for Jerusalem when they'll be brought low and they'll be judged for their arrogance and their apathy towards their sin. Verse 19, people will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the grounds from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Chapter 3, verses 24. Instead of fragrance in Jerusalem, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. This is a picture of invasion, of being taken captive, of being judged, being destroyed. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn, destitute. She will sit on the ground. So here are these 
jarring, contradictory pictures of what is in store for Jerusalem. One is glorious, one is very grim. So how will this resolve? That's, that's the question here. You know, how is this going to work its way out? How can both pictures of the future be true? Well, I'm glad you asked. Come with me to Isaiah 11, because there, because there it talks about a future second Exodus event. So the Exodus is the great salvation event in the Old Testament, right? And here it talks about a second Exodus event. Look what it says. Listen to what it says in chapter 11, verses 15 to 16. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So what you have going on here is this second Exodus event. And it's the first time in the Old Testament that this idea of a faithful remnant is introduced. And so really the message of Isaiah 1 to 12 is simply this. How will we get to Zion well, through the faithful remnant who actually takes sin seriously. That's how we'll get there. With a people of God who are actually purified through judgment, purged through judgment. Jerusalem, which I cho- you know, I've chosen and called my own, but which is a, which is a, a mixture and, and at the moment largely people who thumb their nose at God's rule I'm going to judge Jerusalem and through that purging judgment, there will be this remnant, this holy remnant, this faithful remnant, and I will rebuild. And through their faithfulness to me, they will become the great Zion, this great blessing to the world. That's the answer. That's how we get to Zion, through the faithful remnant. That's how it sets it up there. You know, Isaiah 1 to 12, and the rest of the book is trying to sort of tease that out, how that's going to happen in more detail, and we'll get there over the coming weeks. Like, how will this faithful remnant happen in more detail? But for now, what I'd like you to do is a little bit of work with the person next to you. So there's a very famous, um, a very famous couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 1 that will come up on the screen. Next slide. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if you can you read that. Yeah, you can. Good. So it's really small for me, but big for you, which is great. So Isaiah 18, 19 to 20. Listen to what it says. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now I pick up this verse because it's pretty well known. Maybe some of you won't know it, but I, I suspect a lot of you would be familiar with these verses. And it helps to clarify, I think, by discussing these few verses, a really important point that Isaiah 1 to 12 is making. So what I want you to discuss with the person next to you is what is meant here when it says, they shall be as white as snow, your sins which like scarlet. They shall be like wool. 
though they are red as crimson. What do you think is meant there by that statement? So there are a few options up there on the screen for you. The first one is, so I have to turn around because I can't read. My eyes are really going bad. So here we go. So number one option, the shall of grace. I will, God will completely forgive you by grace and not by works. Is that the statement here? How are we going to get to this new Jerusalem, this faithful remnant? Well, by God doing all the work. And even though you're dreadfully sinful and you're asking for blessing, but you're hanging on to your sin, God will fix it by just pouring grace on you. And washing away your sins, the shall of grace. Or is it the shall of works? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That kind of thinking in the Ten Commandments, you know. Um, is it that kind of shall? By becoming obedient, then you'll be washed clean. Or third option, is it the shall of consolation? If only the Israelites obey, they will certainly receive a clean slate. In other words, if you turn to me in faithfulness, I will purify you. If you turn away from your apostasy and take, take sin seriously, take holiness seriously, I will for sure, I promise you, I'll make you clean. So got it? Discuss with the person next to you. I'm going to give you two minutes to discuss that one. See how you go. What's, what's meant by these verses? <laughs> Okay, so let's um, wrap it up. So we're going to take a vote here. So, no wrong answers. <laughs> so, um, get ready. Who's voting for number one, the shell of grace? The blood of Christ will just cover it. Good representation. Jacob's trying to sit in the fence. Pretty typical there. <laughs> so good, good. Yep, that's a good smattering of people. Number two, the shall of works. Who's voting for that? You need to obey yourself out of this. Couple, good, solid. Number three, the shall of consolation. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's about 50-50 on the number one and three and a couple on number two. Well, next slide. Boom. So there you have. <laughs> Mic drop <laughs> for some. No. <laughs> so, um, so you've got like the reason I've put names under those options is because actually all of them, all of them are argued. Those interpretations are all argued by different solid biblical scholars. And so I'm not going to say that one of them is definitely right and the others are wrong. I really do believe it's debatable. But I kind of set it up, I think, to sort of edge you towards number three. And I just want to say that John Calvin <laughs> is on my side. So it may not mean anything to you, but it means a lot to me. Look him up. <laughs> so John Calvin uh, does prefer the third option. And the reason he reads it that way is because of the immediate context. Do you see that? Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You'll be completely purified from your sins. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. 
But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. So what John Calvin sees, and I think it's consistent with Isaiah 1 to 12, is a call as God's people to take holiness seriously. And he says, this is what it means to be the faithful remnant, the people who are actually saved. In the New Testament, this is, I think, clarified even further. It's made really clear. But I think many of us still are not clear on this, right? It was said at Summit. I'll say it here again. I'll say it all the time because it's so important. What are we saved for? To escape judgment? No, no. Escaping judgment is definitely a part of salvation. Of course, it's a massive relief, right, to have my sins nailed to the cross. But that's not the point. The point of salvation is that we're released from judgment to be God's people, to be holy, to be holy. We're saved to be holy. And only people who recognize that God is king, that God is actually holy, that God is God, only those people are saved. People who come to God because they just want to escape his judgment, but at the same time do not want to acknowledge that he is God and that he is holy and that he is good. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work. That's the problem with Jerusalem. You're saying, God, come bless us. Come on, God, come through with your promises. Why are you being so slow? Why are you holding back from us? And he's saying, don't look at me, look at you. You're walking around with all this sin. You're praying all these prayers and you're, you're not dealing with your sin. And this in Isaiah is, is, is laying the foundation. And throughout the Bible, this is actually pretty clear, right? So we shouldn't, there shouldn't be any ambiguity when it gets to the New Testament. But listen to what it says in the New Testament. And can you see the same kind of idea? 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Do you see that? If you walk in the light, if you take sin seriously, if you recognize God as holy and pursue his character and take off the old nature and put on the new nature, then you're walking in the light. And yes, God promises, I shall make you as white as snow. I shall purify you completely. If you are serious about turning from your sin into holiness, or as it says in... Um, as it says in Ephesians, it's interesting, right? Are we saved by works or are we saved by grace? Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you've been saved. Let's be clear. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourself is the gift of God. Everything is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is no way possible we can interpret this, read these verses and think that there's anything you contribute to your salvation. God does it all. He even gives you the, the gift of being able to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. 
Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not by works, but created by God to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See how clear that is? We're not saved merely to escape judgment. We are saved to belong to him. He's redeemed a people for himself. And that's the faithful remnant, and that's through whom the blessings flow to all of God's creation. So what does that mean for us? So what? Well, let me finish with um, two quotes from John Owen, who's uh, written a book on putting sin to death. So here we go. First of all, uh, so what holiness really matters. John Owen says, be always at it whilst you live. That is killing sin. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's true. Take sin seriously, Christian. There's only one way to be in Christ's kingdom and that is to walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus doesn't recognise any other sort of disciple. And secondly, only grace works. When it comes to dealing with sin and pursuing holiness, when it comes to pursuing holiness, only grace works. See what I did there? Only grace works. Grace works. Yeah, I like that. So only grace works. To mortify a sin, John Owen again, to mortify a sin, to kill it, to mortify a sin is not utterly to kill, root it out and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all, nor residence in our hearts. It is true that this is that which is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. The same guy, meditating on sin, take it, be killing it or it'll be killing you, but know this, sin will always be there. And all of your sins will always be there a bit. We know, don't we, that you know, alcoholics, um, when they get sober, how do they identify? I'm a sober alcoholic. That's how they deal with it. It's always there waiting to have me. There's always a part of me that's going to have a problem relationship with alcohol till the day I die. And sins like that, whatever sin you're entangled in right now, my friends, I understand. I really do. We all have besetting, besetting sins. And go back to our talk series from semester one on Romans. We thoroughly talked about grace and its power. My friends, if you're struggling with sin, don't be, don't be too ashamed. Be ashamed of it because it's right to be ashamed of sin. Don't be so ashamed of it that you feel you can't talk to anyone about it. Or don't be so ashamed that you feel like no one can understand. I think... Any Christian who says that there aren't major sins they're struggling with in their life, I think they're lying. We all struggle with sin. It's, it's the fall of nature at war with the spirit. And we shouldn't be afraid of it because grace does save it. The requirement, though, is that we take it seriously. Is that we never try to downplay it or to sanctify our sin or have one domesticated sin that we sort of say we can indulge and we just put in a little pen and as long as, it gets, as long as that sin doesn't go too far, I'm okay. No, that's not okay. You can have besetting sins but be fighting sin. 
But we need to live by grace because we can't be afraid of sin as we fight with it. And yet another famous uh, quote from J.L. Packer to, to finish on, because this is really the power that we have in pursuing holiness. He talks about J.L. Packer, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's the way to really put sin to death, is to know that by grace you've been saved, You've been set free from sin, having the power of death over you. So now you can pursue the glory of holiness. Even at the same time as you're a sinner. And that is what will actually finally begin to choke sin out in your life. When you develop a love for the good things of God. But this is a job you must do. This is a job you must do. That's the message of Isaiah 1 to 12, the faithful remnant. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news as proclaimed in Isaiah. And we thank you that your plans for Jerusalem, for Zion, will never be thwarted. And dear God, we do thank you that you're that glorious kind of king to whom all the nations will flow because you are full of wisdom and love and holiness. Help us, God, to come to you, not just to be relieved of judgment, but help us to come to you because we love you and we want to be more like you. And you are good. You are thoroughly good. Help us, God, to long to be like you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.